All right. That was interesting. <laughs> the only difference between us and Walmart is we, they had a power outage, is what they said in the area here for just a few seconds. But the difference between us and Walmart is they don't have a band that has to play over there <laughs> once it comes back on. But uh, we appreciate your patience on that. That was uh, unexpected, but I appreciate the team working right through it. All right. Good to have you today in God's house. We're glad that you're here. Just in case. Just in case. Because i got to back up. All right, I don't even know what to do with this. Oh, okay. I got my eye on you, Wazowski. <laughs> That's my favorite show. Okay. All right, uh, take your Bibles to Mark chapter 10 this morning. Mark chapter 10. I'm going to be preaching uh, back to our series in the book of Mark and coming back to our series. The title today is Only One Thing Away, Only One Thing Away. And so I want to take this passage of scripture and challenge your hearts as we continue through this series. And this is um, uh, the story of the rich young ruler. And so let's stand together now. We'll read Mark chapter 10. I'll begin in verse 17 through verse 22. I'll go through verse 23, actually, 23. 17 to 23. Follow along now, Mark 10. And as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack. Go and sell all that you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. But at these words he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. You may be seated. Now we have our graduation Sunday. We're going to be doing that at the end of this service. We also have members joining today. So I would have intended to go all the way through the end of verse, 20, uh, verse 31, but uh, I just won't have the time to do that. So I've decided to kind of break it down into just a shorter message today. Uh, entitled Only One Thing Away. Now I'm pretty sure that if you've lived any amount of time in your life and you're a member at this church, I would say that you know by now money doesn't buy happiness. Money doesn't buy happiness. Every one of us knows that, but if someone came up to us and offered us money, there's a good chance we'd all say, I'll take it. I'll take it. Because there's a struggle in all of our hearts over money. Uh, we, we don't want to be greedy, yet at the same time we'd like to get all we can and all we can have because of the ways that it takes away a lot of the pains of life. And so money is something that everyone is attracted to. I remember even when I was engaged to be married, I specifically remember the joy of feeling the engagement period. We were two months out from the marriage and people started sending us cards with gifts in them and pre uh, presents and all kinds of things. And I was like, this is the greatest thing in the world. I'll just keep getting married and I'll have it made. 
but uh, I w- we'd get these $50 gifts and even $100 gifts. And back then, that was a huge amount of money. And I was just tickled over that. I was living down in South Charlotte at the time, and I was talking to my father-in-law about it. And I said, man, I'm, we're just rolling in the cash and rolling all these gifts. I love it. And then I said to him, I just, I just want to be a blessing to people. He said, what do you mean a blessing? Well, the Bible says it's more blessed to give than to receive. And if they're given to me, they're going to get the blessing. So they just need to keep giving to me. And that's the way I saw it. And so I just say that because that's a little backward. I realize that's a little backward. But if you need a blessing today, I'll be up here at the front after the service. And you can stop on up here and we'll make you a blessing. But uh, we all feel that in our hearts. And what strikes me about this passage is Jesus is not even asked about money. He's not even asked about money. The the guy comes up to him, and this young ruler comes up to him and says, what do I have to do to get eternal life? That's what he's interested in, is eternal life. But because Jesus knows who's asking, and he can see his heart, he speaks to his heart. Now, that's one thing you'll never be able to run away from with your relationship with Jesus. He can always see your heart, and he can read your heart. And so, it's very important to understand that that's why Jesus takes it down the money road. But on the other side of the coin, it's not about money at all. It's about the greatest news man could ever hear. And that's what's so, uh, the tension in this passage. Now, in this particular section of Mark, we're in Act 2, which is on the way to Jerusalem. And everything he does on the way to Jerusalem is to tell him, I'm going to die, I'm going to be put on a cross, and I'm going to be buried, and I'm going to raise from the dead. He keeps telling him that, and then he says, now what I want you to do on the way to Jerusalem is I want you to understand what it means to be a follower of mine. And to be a follower of mine, you've got to deny yourself, you've got to take up your cross, and you've got to follow me. And so in that radical discipleship, what Jesus is saying is God is interested in transforming every area of your life. And if you're going to be a radical disciple, he has to transform your pocketbook. And this is what he's going to do with his disciples. He's going to say this is one of the elements of radical discipleship. Now, the struggle of this man is that underneath the deep question of eternal life, he has these superficial understandings of how to really get there. And so Jesus is going to address that. So I've kind of outlined around three simple thoughts this morning. There are three superficial understandings that fight against radical discipleship in your life. Three superficial understandings. Here we go. Let's jump into them. Number one, you can have a superficial understanding of what goodness is. A superficial understanding of what goodness is. The Bible says in verse 17, the young man ran up to him and he knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Okay, let's just pause right there and understand this, okay? Here comes this young man. We know he's a young man, maybe not from this passage, but the parallel passages call him a ruler and also call him young. So he's probably, if you understand that word, he's probably about 28 years of age. He's a young man starting out in life. He's got his training. He's got everything he needs. He's going into his career. And so in this case, he's a ruler. So he's, he's done well at the point of 28. Probably his parents were rulers, and now it's being passed on to him. But he sees Jesus, and he runs to him, and he bows down before him. Now, in New Testament times, that's very unusual to do, because number one, if you're 28 years or older, you don't run. It's 
undignified and it shows that you are not in control of your life. And so it's very unusual for this man to run, especially a rich guy, and he's a ruler. And the second thing he does is he bowed down. Now, that's unusual too because it wasn't normal for a man to bow down to another man. It was usually only done by slaves. And so you got two unusual things going on here. And so what it tells us about this guy's heart is he's eager, he's humble, and literally he senses the urgency of his question. How do you inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? So he calls him good teacher, good teacher. Now, that's the third thing that's unusual about this Paris passage because you, you didn't say that in the day. You didn't call anybody good. That's why Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one's to be, say good, but God, the Father, is the idea there. And so even Jesus is questioning that. Why does he call him good? Now, what, what's hard for us to understand in our culture is we, call, we use the word good all the time. We say, she's a good lady. She's a good man. He's a good man. Or, He's a good boy, he's a good girl, or I got a good dog. We even say that, we got a good dog. Now, why do we use that word good so much in our culture? Because implied behind saying someone is good, it means that they're above the average. They're above the average. So if I say a good man, I'm saying he's just not a man, he's a man above the average. He's a good man. He's a good dog. Why is he a good dog? Well, when I call him, he comes. Okay? He doesn't bite the mailman. And he's housebroken. So he does, that's, a, that's a good dog, isn't it? By the way, I've never heard anybody call their dog a bad dog. You know, Nobody has a bad dog. Maybe for an hour or two, but for the most part, he's a good dog. He's a good dog. So what about when you call someone a good man? What does that mean? Well, he doesn't bite the mailman. He comes when he's called, and he's housebroken. That would hardly be the understanding of that, but what we mean is compared to every other man, he's a good man. He's a good man. And, and that's one of the things that this word good so falls off our lips like it would not have fallen off their lips then because that's comparing themselves to each other. And we do that all the time today. We like to compare ourselves to each other. And Paul even warns against this to the Corinthians, which had the biggest problem. They compare themselves with themselves and by themselves, and they are not wise. And that's one of the most dangerous things you do is you start comparing yourself to others and say, you know, I'm not a bad guy compared to him or compared to what they do or compared to how they act. And so Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? There's none good but God. Now, Jesus knows he's good, and he knows he's God, okay? But what he wants to know is, why are you doing it? Are you recognizing me as God? Are you seeing me as God, who I am and what I can do? So I kind of want to clarify. He's, it's, it's like Jesus saying, I want to clarify you. What do you mean by that? Because that's an unusual thing to say to me. Because ultimately, all goodness of anyone must be defined by the character of God. That's important you understand that. Not by comparing yourself to others. So when we judge ourselves by the ultimate standard of the righteousness of God, and we take that as the ultimate standard, then we understand there's none righteous. No, not one. That's where we've got to put ourselves in comparison to the one who has the highest standard. No one does good. No, not one. None. None. We all want to be good. 
We all want to be good, and we want to appear good. But the truth of the matter is, before God considers your deeds good, He not only looks at your outward conformity to the law, but He also looks down at your heart. And He wants to see that in your heart, you 100% want to glorify Him. That's what He looks at. And the truth is, He knows the answer, and so do we. There's none righteous. Not a single one of us. Not a single one of us. And that's something to be very clear from this passage. You don't do something to make yourself worthy. Hear what the man said. What must I do? How do, how do I inherit eternal life? What must I do? That's the emphasis of his statement. And Jesus is saying, you don't do something to make yourself worthy. You have to inherit the goodness. You have to inherit Another's goodness, that's the understanding of superficialness of goodness. Okay, let me go on. Number two, you can have a superficial understanding of the law. Now, in this case, Jesus looks at him and said, hey, man, you know the law. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't defraud. That would be covet there. Don't covet, honor your father and mother. Now, what he does is he takes the second part of the law, the last six commandments. The first four are about God. The last six are about how you treat people. Hey, don't commit adultery. Why? Because you don't want somebody doing that to you. Don't steal. Why? Because you don't want somebody doing that to you. See, so he looks at the relational side of it. Why does he pick the second part of the law to quote to this guy? Why does he do the first four? Because the second part are the easy ones. They're the easy ones. That's why he picks those. The man is here listening to Jesus, and he hears these six commands, and he breathes a sigh of relief, and he says, man, I got it made. He says to Jesus, I have done all this since I was a child. That word is a word for a 7 to 14 year old. I've done this since I was 7 years of age. I'm good to go. I got it made. In other words, my conscience is clear. I've kept those six commandments just like you said. Now, Jesus could have done a couple things which he didn't do and I want you to hear him. First he could have come up and said, hey man, you're doing pretty good. Just keep on, you'll go to heaven. He could have said that. You're doing pretty good. But he didn't say that, did he? Or he could have jumped to the other side and he could have said this. He could have said, you haven't kept one of these commandments since you got out of your bed at the beginning of this week. And he'd have been right to say that too. He could have said that. He could have said, you didn't keep one of these commandments. He said since a child, because if you remember the Sermon on the Mount, which apparently this rich guy wasn't there, Jesus said, at the Sermon on the Mount, it's not just the act of committing adultery, but if you look on a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery already in your heart. Now, what man could say that? See, so he's guilty. He's guilty. He's guilty of that one. He could have said, the law is not just thou shalt not kill, but if you ever got angry at someone and hated them and insulted them and mocked them, you broke the law. Thou shalt not kill. Have you ever taunted someone? Have you ever made fun of them? You broke the law. See, see how deep it goes? It goes right down to the depth of your heart. The, the demands of God's law are far deeper than the mere simple outward obedience spelled out. Because what this man was hoping is he, he harbored this hope inside of him that he could earn his way to heaven. I've kept these since I've been a child. I've not done any of them. 
What must I do? This is what I'm doing. I'm earning my way. And by the way, that's, there's no difference to that than the way that many of the people in this culture are living today. I just want to be a little better than this guy, and I'm doing a pretty good job. I'm not perfect, but I'm good. I'm good. And that's the way most people live in this culture and expect to get to heaven on the basis of their performance. And the truth of the matter is, God spells it out exactly opposite in that, but they still believe it. And by the way, not only do a lot of people in our culture believe that, but the truth is, the vast majority of them are in church today. That's the sad part of it, is a vast majority think they lived a good life, they haven't murdered, they haven't committed adultery, they go to church, they're a deacon, they're a pastor, and I think I'll be okay. I'll be okay. Personally, as I talk in this community, I'm alarmed by it because that's the constant answer I hear is I'm not a bad person. I'm pretty good. Not perfect, but I'm pretty good because the implication is I'm, I'm, I'm doing some things that God will take notice of. And I'll, I'll be able to get in. And if you're doing that, if you're holding out any kind of hope for your goodness, I want to tell you the best thing you could do is take all of that that says... No, not one is righteous. And throw yourself at the mercy of God and say, God, there is nothing good in me. I am a sinner. I am in deserving of the judgment of God. And I claim your sacrifice for my sin so that your righteousness can be placed in me and so that when God looks at me, he sees me through his son, Jesus Christ. That's, that's the one way that the Bible makes very clear. But this man had a superficial understanding of the law. Now, Jesus doesn't say any of that, but that was where my mind was going as I was thinking about this. Jesus doesn't say any of that. You didn't keep the law. You didn't keep that. You're guilty. You're guilty. You're guilty. You're guilty. He didn't do that with the guy. And that's what struck me as I was looking at this. His evangelism method is so different than I would never tell you to do this evangelism method. Okay, says to the guy, you lack one thing. Sell everything you got, give it to the poor, come follow me. Listen, that is not a straightforward, effective way to witness to people. Just sell everything you got. That's, that's an amazing thing on this. This, this. this evangelism method is so foreign to us. But here's the truth. Jesus was trying to help this man. Okay? He wasn't just saying it to say it. He was trying to help this guy. Look at verse 21. It's so beautiful. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him. See, that's got to be in your evangelism strategy. You've got to love people. You've got to love them. And I love this. I love this. He loved him. And, and by the way, you ought to mark this down in your notes. It's the only time that Jesus says he loves a person in the book of Mark. It's the only time he says he loves a person. There's something about this guy that gets a hold of Jesus' heart. There he is on his knees, begging and coming before him and saying, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Man says, I've kept the law from my childhood. And the Bible says he loved him. He loved him. That's amazing to me. It's, it's almost like Jesus was saying this, oh man, you are so close. You are so close to heaven. Just so close. Can you feel that from him? Putting his arm around him 
and just saying, let me make this clear to you. You're going to get there, but you're so close, but you're not there yet. There's, there's one thing standing between you, this life, and your eternity. And, and I love you so much, I'm just going to be honest with you. See, that's, that's the spirit about Jesus here. I love this. We talk about Jesus loving sinners, and he does. And we talk about Jesus loving people who fail, and he does. But I'm telling you this, and I want you to get this in your heart. Jesus also loves people who are trying to do the right thing. He is trying to love people that do the right thing. But they haven't connected all the dots. See, they understand intuitively there's something about doing the right thing and being a good person. They understand that intuitively. They just haven't connected all the dots and got far enough. And so you may be going through life wondering, I wonder if Jesus ever notices me for the good things I'm trying to do. Let me tell you this, I want to say it this way. Jesus is a big fan of prisoners, okay? And he's a big fan of moral people. I don't know if I've ever said that. And maybe you're here and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, but you needed to hear that. That he loves you. And he's proud of you for trying to do the right thing. You're so close. You are so close. Okay, with that I'm going to go to number three. Okay, let me just jump to number three. You can, be, you can have a superficial understanding of eternal treasures. You can have a superficial understanding of eternal treasures. This man is searching and trying. And Jesus' response is profound. Okay, you say you kept the law? Let's put it to the test. All right? You got one little thing you lack. There's only one, you're only one thing away from life into eternity. You are so close, man. You are so close. You've done so well. And I don't want you to miss heaven, but it's going to require one little tiny thing. One little tiny thing. <laughs> Verse 21. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess, give to the poor, and you have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Now, there, that, that verse, it's, it's just a little hard for me to describe this to you because the New American Standard and ESV follow a certain translation, and it actually leaves out a word in one of the translations and so people fight over should that word be there or not and the word would be just so you hear it because I, I think I'm going to include it so you can understand where I'm going with this but uh, the word would be to take up your cross between come take up your cross and follow me now the new American leaves it out and there are reasons for that and I don't want to get into all that because that, that would be off target for my sermon here today and I'd be happy to talk to you about another time. But if you take this verse, what you see is this verse is the center of chapters 8 to 11 about being on the way to Jerusalem and he's going to put at core what radical discipleship is with your pocketbook. And here's what he's going to say. He says to this man, do three things. Go, sell, and give. Three verbs. And then over here he's going to say, Come, take, and follow. Come, take, and follow. And at the center is the word eternal treasures. 
So what he's doing here, which is amazing, this is why I think this is a better translation than what you just missed with that one phrase in the NAS, and that is that you've got the, sep- you've got the perfect structure of this verse at the center of what it means to be on the way to Jerusalem. You've got to, you've got to come, take up your cross, and follow, but yet what does it mean practically for you? You've got to go, sell, and give. See, radical discipleship has, ties those two things together because it's so easy to say, yep, got to follow Jesus, got to deny myself, got to take up my cross and follow him. But the truth of the matter is, it's got to affect your pocketbook. And that's what this man would not do. This is what this man would not do. But it's at the center of the heart of radical discipleship for these chapters. And it's so beautiful to see that you've got this perfect structure in this verse. And he's tying what it means to really be a disciple with go, sell, and give. And there it is. Eternal treasures right there at the center. Eternal treasures. And so this becomes a powerful, powerful verse for radical discipleship. Come, Take, follow. Come, take, follow. See, because most of you will sit there and you'll say, you know you're never going to have to carry a cross. You know you're going to never have to pick up a cross. You know you're ne- that's never going to happen to you. You're never going to be walking up the hill to Golgotha and being crucified. And so what Jesus wants to do is he wants to make it real to you. What does it mean? It means that there's got to be something in your heart that says, I'll go, I'll sell, and I'll give. That's radical discipleship. And he's going to talk to disciples about this. We'll get into it at a later time. But I at least want you to see the core center of this verse of these eternal treasures. See, what Jesus knew is this man was going to struggle with this. If that's what following you means, God, I don't want any of it. You mean you've got to have total control of my pocketbook? I'm not sure that's going to work for me. You want me to go out and sell it all? And follow and give it away? To Jesus, it's like it just rolled off his lips. That's easy. Hey, man, you go out and do that. We'll be over at Starbucks. Just stop on by when you're done, and then we'll get on with our way, and you can follow me. That's how that's just kind of rolled off his lips like that. Just so simple to Jesus, but not to this guy. To this guy, Jesus knew money was this man's God. That's my God, man. Get your hands off my God. And though he kept the six outward commands of the ten commands, he broke the first one. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Jesus knew money was his idol. Oh, he may have went to church on Sunday. He probably did, was real faithful at church. But all week long he was consumed with the questions of wealth. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Seven days, six days he's consumed by getting wealth. And one day I'm at church. This is, this is what he's driving at with this man. And this man would not really handle that well. And he could not get this in his head. So money ranked ahead of God. That's, that's the test. That's the test of idolatry. And, and I just want you to hear it. Is there anything you fear more than God? Anything you trust more than God? And anything you love more than God? That's the test of idolatry. See, whatever you pursue in your life, you worship. Just, you don't even have to go through into the future. What did you pursue this last week? What did you pursue? Whatever you pursue, you worship. That's your idol. And I, I want to say to you as a pastor, be careful what you chase. 
Be careful what you chase, okay? Because whatever you chase and whatever you pursue, make sure it's good enough to be your God. Make sure it's good enough to be your God. That's a, that's a heavy, weighty question. Whatever you choose, I just choose. Go ahead, just choose whatever's going to be your God. But make sure it can heal you when you're sick. Make sure when you die, it can raise you from the dead. Make sure it can do that for you. When your kids are in another state and they desperately need your help and you can't get to them and you can't get anything to them to help them, make sure you have someone that can get to them. See that? That's really the idea behind this. Be careful what you chase after to be your God. Be careful. Be careful what you chase after. That's radical discipleship. That literally Jesus is kind of saying to this guy, get rid of it, man. It is standing between you and me. Get rid of it. It's standing between you and me. If you have to cut off your hand, you have to cut off your foot, if you have to take out your eye, do it. Whatever keeps you from getting to heaven, you've got to get rid of it. That's all you have to do, man. <laughs> Just sell it all. Sell it all. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, just gave this guy an invitation to follow him, to join him. And by the way, it's the same call he gave Peter. It's the same call he gave James and John and Bartholomew and Thaddeus and all the other 12 disciples. It's the same call he gave them. And you know what those 12 did? They dropped everything and they followed him. They dropped everything and they followed him. Which strikes me. This guy had the same opportunity, the same offering, offer by Jesus, but this man went away sorrowful. He went away sad. Now, what strikes me, and you need to understand this about the book of Mark, this is the only time a guy comes to Jesus excited and leaves sorrowful or sad. Everybody else comes to Jesus sad and they walk away happy. It's the only time in the book of Mark where this guy comes and he walks away sad. He turns into a growing despair. Comes with excitement, leaves with growing despair. Now that word there, that grieving word there is a word which means downcast or shocked or appalled. He was devastated by those words. Why was he devastated? He had lots of stuff. He had lots of stuff. That's why he was devastated. Yet he's the one who wanted to know how to get to heaven. Yeah, he wants to know, how do you get to heaven? But letting go of my stuff, that's too much. He's worried about his eternity, but his stuff was more important. I thought about this. This guy's probably 28, 30 years of age. And the average guy lived to be about 60, so maybe he's got 30 years left. And the way I see it from his perspective, he's saying, I'd rather hang on to these things for 30 years and roll the dice with my eternity. What kind of deal? I, I can't get you to see that any more than we could have got that rich man to see that. I'd rather have it for 30 years than I would to roll the dice for my eternity. Eternal treasures? Eh, I don't know. I'm not convinced. Now, I don't think, personally, I don't think, well, the truth is, 
What would you do if Jesus said that to you? What if he said to you, you really want to get to heaven? Sell everything you got. Sell it all. Would you do that? Now probably with your mouth you could say, oh yeah, I'd do that right now. Let me tell you something, I can relate to this guy. And you can relate to this guy. Because you don't know if you'd be ready to do that either. Sell it all? If I just look at myself, I don't got as much as this guy had, and I don't got as much as many of you got. But I'll tell you this, I got some stuff. I got some stuff. And to get rid of it, just like that, and give it away, for eternal treasures in heaven, that's, that's tough. Now, I don't think Jesus is given a universal rule here, okay? So you understand the context. In order to get to heaven, sell all, join the monastery, and make a vow of poverty. No, I don't think that's what he's saying. But he is giving us a true picture of radical discipleship. Radical discipleship. How are you investing in the eternal treasures of heaven? That's the question you have to answer as you walk out of here today. How are you investing in the eternal treasures with the stuff that you got? What are you doing? So sometimes we can relate to a guy like this. Doesn't the exchange sound a little dicey? That sounds a little dicey to me. Eternal treasures I can't see. For temporal treasures I can see? I mean, come on. Come on, you're going to tell me to try to live for something I can't see? For something I can see? That's his struggle. How, how can we give up what he can see for something he cannot see? That's his struggle. You know, from an investment side, that looks like a terrible investment. Because at the least, how do you really know? How do you really know there's eternal treasures waiting for you? That's a risk. That's like a bad app option call, you know? Do I really want to make that call? But the truth of the matter is, I can't get you to see that. I can only tell you about it. Only God can give you the eyes of faith to really believe there are eternal treasures waiting for you. Are you taking your money and investing it for eternal treasures? That's why Jesus said, it's hard. Jesus said how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Wealth is a supreme stumbling block. It's a block for the saved. It's a block for the unsaved because it captivates our affections and makes us forget the one we need. I've seen it happen with me. I've seen it happen with people in this church. And I've seen people in this church who've invested their money very wisely for the kingdom of God. And all I can say is I can't make you see it. You have to see that with the eyes of faith. So, is there anything in your heart that you hold so dear that it would keep you from radically following Him? All I can say is, it's not worth it. That's all I can say, but only God can give you the eyes of faith to see that. Let's pray. In a very real way, this man was standing before God Almighty. 
and in sorrow he walked away from the greatest offer he was ever given. He was right before the pearl of great price and he said, I don't want it. I don't want it. And in a very real way, you've heard the word of God here today and I'm telling you, though you can't see it, Jesus is standing before you. And he's offering you eternal life. And he's saying, will you receive me? Stop saying you're a good person. That's not the point with Jesus. You have to own your sin. You have to own that you're not a good person. To recognize that Christ paid the price for your sin. You don't, you don't bring anything. You come with empty hands and you say, God, I'm guilty. My sin deserves judgment. But you died on a cross as a payment for my sin. You shed your blood for me. That your righteousness could be put on me. And my sin would be put on you and born to a cross and into a grave. But Jesus, you rose from the dead. <laughs> and I believe it. And I put all my faith and trust in that, that you'll give me your righteousness and you'll wash away my unrighteousness. God sees me, he'll see his son. It's just too good to be true. But if you're here and you've never received the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to give just an offer right now to you. He's standing before you. And he's making that offer. Would you say this morning, I want to receive him as my Lord and Savior. I don't want there to be anything between me and him. I want him to be my God. I want to pursue him. I want him. You need the Lord as your Savior. You'd like to receive him right now. Would you just lift up your hand? Lift it and hold it up so I can see it. Okay, I'm going to just take a moment to look around. But you'd say, that's my need. I need to be saved. Just lift it up. Is there one? I don't see any hand, but I want to take just a moment. If that's there, hold it up. So I'm not seeing any, so I'm not going to push that. I just want to talk to my people for a minute here. You know, money is always a difficult subject. It's always tough to talk about. I've been a pastor long enough to know that the majority of you, you would say to me, it's really personal, Pastor Rob. It's really personal. So I guess then I'll just make it really personal and leave it there. Leave it there for you have the eyes of faith to see the eternal treasures over that which you see right now. That God's heart would speak to you, give you the eyes of faith to believe that. Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for these that have come, these that have sat under the word of God and listened attentively and their spirit has been spoken to by your spirit. God, send them forth now. I pray a blessing on them. Let us go forth and love people. Just love them. With all the things that stand between you and them, may we love them, Father. God, we'll lift it up to you now. We'll ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. Praise team's going to lead us in this song. I'll be back up here for our...
members that will be joining in just a few moments. So somewhere toward the end of the song, I'll just ask our, the ones who are coming to join the church if they'd make their way to the front toward the end of this song.